someone stands up and says, thus saith the Lord, and has a, a word from the Lord, and he delivers this message. One of the things that I can't get my mind around is why isn't anybody taking notes? This is God talking. And so my question is, why isn't that scripture? What do you think Paul would have said to you with all the prophecies that were taking place in the Corinthian church that he was encouraging? It depends what we mean by desiring spiritual gifts. Is it to acquire it for ourselves out of egotism and pride, or is it to be in communion with God? We don't seek the gifts, we seek the person of God. That's the order of things. We just love Jesus Christ. Welcome to the Don't Knock It podcast, where we address misconceptions about Jesus' character, his church, and his word. By doing this, we hope to encourage you to delight in Christ before dismissing him, to know him before knocking him. I'm your host, Chris Ramirez, and we will be continuing our chapter-by-chapter overview through 1 Corinthians and joining me to address the passage where Paul talks about the spiritual gifts. And in this episode, I have my brother in Christ, Renz Ignacio with me to unpack this very dense chapter and this very uh, complicated topic of spiritual gifts. But before we go into the conversation on spiritual gifts, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your faith and what essentially brought you to the Lord and what's currently on your heart? No, thank you for introducing me, Chris. Uh, Thank you for having me. And I'm I'm humbled uh, to be able to be a part of this show. And so I appreciate you bringing me in and even the time we've had with each other. Thank you. About myself, um, I grew up in the Philippines, actually. uh, So this is a little bit of where I came from. And during that time, I grew up Catholic, you know, and as a Catholic, you know, they teach you the fear of God mostly. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, you know, they would bombard you with uh, so much of works rather than grace, it's it's about how you have to do this in order to obtain salvation. But nonetheless, you know, upon knowing Christ, upon hearing about Christ, and when I came to the United States, due to my uncle's discipleship of me, um, he took me under his wing, he preached the gospel to me, and during that time, you know, I was still in the transition phase, you could call it. Um, it was mainly difficult to understand at first because something so, I guess you could call it scandalous, as uh, some other Christians would say, as the gospel would be, because who would die for your sins, mm-hmm. right? That, that, that's a question to be, to be asked, yeah. right? Who would die for your sins? But ultimately, when he took me under his wing, the first thing that, I, that happened was he brought forth John MacArthur's voice. Mm-hmm. Each time I was in his car, John MacArthur would be in his car. Yeah. It would be a recording of somewhere along the Gospel of John. It was always about the Gospel of John. It was always about the Gospel. And every time I, he would you know, bring me in, it would be an hour before church. So, therefore, I have to finish the sermon. Yeah. Right? Of course. And... <laughs> And every time, at the end of every sermon, he would ask, what did you learn? And as a kid, I'm not going to, you know, regurgitate whatever John MacArthur has spoken mm-hmm. about. I'm yeah. not going to listen. How old were you? I was about 10, 12 in this time. So this is the 10 time frame. 10, 12, and you were yeah. getting fed yeah. John MacArthur? That's... Yeah. Wow. Okay. 
<laughs> that makes that makes a lot of sense. Okay. <laughs> um, but ultimately, as time goes by, he finally asked me the question of, if you were to die right now, Renz, and you were sent up to heaven, or sent up to the gates of heaven, mm-hmm. the Lord comes to you and he asks you, why should I let you enter my kingdom? And he asked me that. And I said, well, first and foremost, I did confession. I pray. I do these things. And he straight up told me, you're going to hell. And as a kid, when you hear that, you're going to be afraid. Yeah. Sobering. Sobering. Clearly sobering. And as straightforward as that was, it became something that kind of turned my mind all the way through until he allowed me to go to an event. It's with the sister churches in the Bay Area among where we went. Uh, it was called Bethel Christian Church and then not affiliated to the Bethelite in Oregon, I believe it is. In uh, Reading. In Reading, there you go. Yeah. In Reading, not affiliated to that, but he brought me to an event where John 3:16 through 19 was preached. And from then, after the gospel was preached, the pastor uh, made an altar call. And... And I truly believe that the Lord called me then. The Lord called me into salvation, to his throne of grace. Because it wasn't a feeling, but rather it was an instantaneous glimpse of understanding that it is my unbelief that kept me away from the Lord. And it was my sinful pride of wanting to do it myself. Mm -hmm. Because as a Catholic, you were brought up to knowing that you have to do these things. You have to do communion, because as you eat of the bread and as you drink of the wine, you're always cleansed. But that's, mm. not, that's not true communion. Yeah. And from then on out, you know, I told my uncle, I went up to him and said, I want to accept the Lord now. I want to accept the Lord as Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. And from then on out, there was a full-on transformation of, man, as a teenager, sin is so widespread. Because you're so influenced. I was in public school. You know, I'm being bombarded with my influence of the influence of my friends, of media. But even then, one of the biggest grave sins that I had to face was lust. Mm-hmm. And with my youth pastor, with the help of him, and as I continue to be ultimately rebuked, it was always about rebuke and understanding what obedience is. And from then on out, you know, college came through, or well, high school and then college. And I went to UCSD and I got in touch with Redeemer's Grace Church, which is affiliated with Grace Community Church. One of their pastors, Pastor Chris Wu, was there. And I think that's when ultimately I was being more cultivated. Yeah. Being more, more cultivated and being more aware and being more sensitive to my sin. And so that I believe that's when fully transformation continued to manifest itself and sanctification further on. And now we're here. I'm living and breathing. And I could confess that that Jesus Christ is my Lord and ultimately my Savior and that there is nothing that I could do in order to be saved and that Mm -hmm. there's nothing on this earth that can save me other than confessing with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and ultimately by his call and by his choosing before the foundation of the world, I'm saved. Amen. So what what was the time frame between you being raised in the Philippines, being uh, discipled by your uncle, and then responding to that altar call 
at that church in, in the like, Bay Area. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was in the Philippines for 10 years, and then I immigrated to the United States at 10. And then from 10 to 12, that was when he was preaching the gospel to me through John MacArthur's sermons. Mm-hmm. And then from, I believe it was March of 2013 that I was saved, that the Lord called me. How old are you now? I'm 25. It was 10 years ago, basically. So I'm 25, so it should have been 15. There you go. You were a teenager (laughs) and felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Correct. In a pretty profound way. Yeah. Praise God. I love that. That's awesome. (laughs) I always appreciate hearing salvation stories from, from teenagers. Like, well, not from teenagers, because you're not a teenager, <laughs> but hearing salvation stories of people who were saved in their teens. Because right. as a high school teacher, a high school, middle school teacher, uh, that's what I desire most for my students. I don't desire that they get A's, which is always great. I don't desire that they listen to everything that I say, but more importantly, that they are indwelled by the Holy Spirit and are convicted of their sin. And like you said, confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord. And then everything else comes after that. The obedience then proceeds that. And so hearing that is just always encouraging. So uh, thank you for sharing that. And not only is it encouraging, but it it gives me more hope. Not to say that I'm, you know, I think that my students are hopeless, but (laughs) but that it, it just, it fuels my hope. And it keeps me going. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I always really appreciate that. And ultimately, so, <clears throat> sorry to cut you no, off. Go ahead, no, go ahead. Ultimately, you know, the Lord will call whom he calls at a certain time, right? It could yeah. be when they're 15 or when they're 13 or even later in the age, 30 years old, 50, 60, right? Yeah. There's no time frame because the Lord knows the timing. It's yeah. in his perfect timing. And to understand his condescension, his death, resurrection, and ascension, and ultimately knowing that it it was substitutionary atonement that was uh, provided for us is is grand for a teenager, right? You know, I could attest that in hindsight, my church back then was weak, Mm -hmm. weak preaching. It was very easy believism uh, preaching. Mm, It was as if like, here, this is the gospel, just say yes. Done deal. Nothing else. And everything became so pseudo-psychological. Mm-hmm. Pseudo-psychological preaching where they say, this is how you should feel when you are are singing. This is how you should act when you are praying or when you are with people. It's very sentimental. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and it ends up leading so many astray. Because yeah. especially especially for the for the young men yeah. who who want to embrace their masculinity and when you when you emphasize emotion and sentimentality which isn't wrong like i'm Mm -hmm. not saying that a masculine man doesn't have those things but if that's what's if that's what's being communicated at the forefront of what a christian should be they're going to shy away from that and so this is why they they go to people who who are masculine in the worldly sense Mm -hmm. and it ends up driving so many of the the young men from our churches when yeah. when we need them we need them to to be raised up to to impact the world right yeah. as christian men who lead who protect yeah. 
and to do everything in their power to to live the word. Right. And so, anyway, bro. All right. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for that. That blessed me. I appreciate that. Let's get into it. So, by way of review, which I'm sure you know already, I'm going through Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is essentially Church 101. He receives a report from Chloe and her household, as he outlines in chapter one, and he basically answers all of the questions, addresses all of the theological issues that are going on in the church. And so I have taught through this letter with our youth. Uh, I did it over the course of the past couple years. And, and so the, the way that I split it up was in three sections. The first four chapters, Paul is addressing the conflict that is going on within the church mem- within the church body, uh, with the church members, and uh, there's significant division. And so Paul, right away, he's like, "Hey, you guys need to figure it out." And then in chapters five and six, he addresses the corruption that is going on within the church body. He addresses specific sins, uh, tells them that anyone who is who identifies with their sin is not worthy of the kingdom of God. He tells them not to sue each other because when they do, they they make the Lord look weak and unwise because they're going outside of uh, what he has provided in the Holy Spirit for wisdom to settle their disputes, which is obviously a significant issue. And then chapter chapters 7 through 16, through the end of the letter, he addresses confusion, which is smack dab in the middle where we're at uh, in our conversation for today. He answers any and all questions about what they're confused about. Uh, Food sacrifice to idols, should I or should I not partake in those meals? Uh, Paul's apostolic rites um, and how he gives them all up so that no one is hindered from hearing the gospel and and being saved. And then uh, church order in chapter 11, uh, head coverings and so on and so forth. And then starting in chapter 12, uh, which I'm actually very excited for, for our conversation. Uh, chapters 12, 13, and 14, he unpacks how they're misusing their spiritual gifts. And chapter 13 is actually sandwiched in between two rebukes. And he's actually saying, like, this is what love is. And then in chapter 15, he answers any and all questions about the resurrection. And then chapter 16, he encourages them to act like men, to be men. And then he closes the letter. Uh, in my opinion, I think he's had the most interaction. He knows the church at Corinth m- better than any other church body in in the region, right? Uh, not the churches of Galatia, not Philippi, no, not Colossae. Like it is the church at Corinth. That is his. That's his baby, so to speak. Um, he has spent the most time with them. He sends them not just the two letters that are included in our canon. But he, history tells us that he probably wrote at least two additional letters, uh, which we don't have, obviously. But this church order during worship uh, dominates the rest of the letter. So he starts that conversation in chapter 11, all the way through the end of chapter 14. So Paul here turns to a new topic where he contrasts the church's former life of, uh, former life of idolatry with its new life empowered by the Holy Spirit. So because believers are empowered by the Holy Spirit, they should be orderly with what the Holy Spirit empowers them to do. So no longer do they submit to the false teaching or the false idols of the world, but they are graciously empowered by God himself through the Holy Spirit. And so in this discussion of 
spiritual gifts, Paul emphasizes the diversity of the gifts and the proper use of them for the mutual benefit of all believers. And so major divisions have occurred in the church, uh, a big one stemming from this misuse of spiritual gifts. So in his intro to the letter in chapter one, uh, verses five and seven, Paul is praising his readers. He's praising the Corinthians for their knowledge and their spiritual gifts. Uh, Now he's ready to focus on their lack of knowledge and their misunderstanding of the gifts. So just to kind of give an idea on how Paul organizes chapter 12, uh, there's 31 verses. In the first 11 verses, he kind of talks about what what I like to call the university of the gifts of the Spirit, right? Um, University is a combination of two words where it's unity in diversity. So there's a diverse set of gifts, but they're united. Uh, So that's kind of what he talks about in the first 11 verses. In verses 12 through 26, he brings up this analogy or he uses this analogy of the body and how it works together. And uh, obviously we'll, we'll go through that and what that entails. And then verses 27 through 31, he, he gets really rhetorical. He asks a, he asks a series of rhetorical questions leading to love. He asks these questions for the purpose of them uh, being prepared to receive this wonderful, this beautiful teaching on the greatest spiritual gift, which is love. Without any further ado, would you mind reading the chapter, chapter 12 in its entirety? Uh, What version are you reading? I'm reading the NKJV. Woo! New King James. New King James. So I'll be alternating between NKJV and LSB, which is the Legacy Standard Bible. Gotcha. Um, This is the inspired word of God, infallible and errant. May it Pierce your hearts and apply it daily. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, discerning of spirits, to another, different kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact the body is not one member but many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, 
I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would be the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the best gifts? And yet I show you a more excellent way. Amen. Thank you, bro. I know that was a a hefty chapter. Yeah. Uh, so I appreciate that. So right from the get-go, um, I want to say that that this conversation on the spiritual gifts it's not is not something to shy away from because Paul opens the this conversation with saying I don't want you to be unaware so he cares he actually cares because this is God's work in his people right. and so the the this is very this is a very important doctrine and I know that there's a lot of baggage that surrounds um, the essence of spiritual gifts uh, but we shouldn't shy away from it. We should actually embrace it and 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 love it. Yeah. And and honestly like get to the point where we understand the conversation so that we may be able to encourage one another in this conversation that has gone on since, you know, since the inception of the church. And so let's focus on the first three verses. There are a couple of questions that I, that come up when I read the first three verses mm. and one of them being verse 3 where he says, therefore I make known to you that no one speaking of the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So obviously, everyone who is able to speak can say, you know, Jesus is Lord. It's very, uh, you know, obviously very simple. But Paul is addressing this for a purpose. And so what I, in my opinion, what I think he's saying is that the content that comes out of those with these divine gifts should be edifying, not blaspheming. And um, if what I feel is not controlled by what I know of Christ, of what I know to be true of Christ, I am intellectually and spiritually adrift and able to attribute horrible things to the prompting of the Spirit. So if, if I don't know, if I don't have an adequate, a biblical knowledge of Christ, I can literally claim anything by the power of the Holy Spirit and 
in my mind be right, be correct, because I have the spirit. But Paul is essentially saying that mere logic cannot force the mind to the affirmation of Jesus as Lord. So it's not necessarily just the words that you use, it's actually the 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 belief behind it. And, and like I said, um, it's beautiful that Paul presents this as something that should be talked about, that should be clarified. No, yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, in Paul's prelude, right? I call it Paul's prelude. I, I actually have three Ps here okay. for the outline, right? Verse 1 to 3 is Paul's prelude. The next point is Paul's presentation of the gifts, verse 4 to 11. And then Paul's portrayal of the church, verse 12 to 31. And then he goes into his rhetoric, right? Right. And ultimately, he begins with this, with this imperative. He says, do not be ignorant. I, he doesn't want us to be ignorant about the gifts. He wants us to edu- educate ourselves of what we were bestowed upon conversion, right. right? Because we are truly indwelled by the Holy Spirit as we are converted. The spiritual gifts, right, and, and the misinterpretation of it is the understanding of what the spiritual gifts were actually used for. Right, in in this time, they were thinking of it as fleshly and ecstasy and ecstasy like, um, mm-hmm. rather than for the edification of the church or for the building of the church, under the complete control of the Holy Spirit and ultimately for God's glory. Mm-hmm. And here we find right, we begin with now concerning spiritual gifts, and then he goes to verse two. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols. However, you were led, and from here he's. He's giving a recollection to their past identity. Right. He's he's pointing them back. Look at what you've done before. This is what happened, mm-hmm. right? This is who you were. You were led astray by these dumb idols, or in the Greek, mute, mm-hmm. mute false gods, images, and figures. Right. And with verse three, it begins with therefore. So he's completing the previous topic, right? Mm-hmm. So now he's going into this. He's kind of crunching it all together. Right. Right. And with the beginning of this first one, right, he says, I make known to you that no one speaking by the same by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse. And we break it down, it says, it's basically literally saying that those in Christ will never ever say that Jesus is a curse, meaning that no one in Christ will blaspheme their Lord. Mm-hmm. If you speak to a true believer, they're not going to say, oh, I have Christ. He's like a curse to me because there's so many trials in my life or so many temptations in my life. Mm-hmm. No one will say that. And during, again, during this time, some of the Corinthians were given to fleshly and experiential ecstasies right. that were controlled by demons. They claimed to be prophesying or teaching in the Spirit. And that's what Paul is addressing here. And they have been judging their, the use of these gifts ba- based on their experiences rather than the content of these spiritual gifts. Yeah. So they were essentially making this the the marker of spiritual maturity. Yeah. If I use this, right, because I can only imagine how exciting this must have been. Yeah. Right. You're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and now you're like, whoa, look at this. Yeah. And Paul's giving us some, like you said, like he give, he's giving us this, pre, this prelude? Yeah. <laughs> this prelude to, to essentially make a contrast where he's contrasting these mute, these dumb, these non-speaking idols with those with divine speech. Right. 
So he's he's essentially saying like, hey, the, all of those idols had nothing. Right. They were they were nothing. But now you have this divine speech, and kind of like introducing the gift of tongues. But um, but he's making this essential contrast because it's it's like this contrast of deadness to life. This this spirit of darkness with the spirit of light. Right. And he, and he's giving them this this almost like this enlightenment. And you could draw from their culture during that time, right? During this time, first and foremost, Paul was writing this in Ephesus. Right? We see that in First Corinthians sixteen. Yeah. He talks about how he'll come to them, right? But then he'll he'll stay at Ephesus first uh, until Pentecost, mm-hmm. and then he'll go for a longer time. And with that in mind, right? Why why then write a letter to the Corinthians? Like, what is so pressing? And, and we know that Corinth sits firmly in southern Greece. Mm-hmm. And within its city limits, the Isthmian Games were held, which is basically like Olympic Games. Yeah. And this caused the flux of people to visit and reside in the area. The city of Corinth became morally corrupt, and the city name became a representative of the gross immorality and drunken nature of its people. It became something like, you are now Corinthianized. Yeah, right? like Las Vegas. Like Las Vegas, right? Sin City. Mm-hmm. which in turn formerly characterized many of the believers in the church. Again, Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adult- idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the same Spirit of our God. And however, the culture's draw and influence remain within the church because it's the same people. Mm-hmm. Therefore, Paul addresses the unwillingness of those in the church to separate from the worldliness and its systems. We're to draw away from the worldly systems and be transformed. Right? Yeah. There's a renewal. There's a the gospel is a transforming power. It doesn't just sits with it doesn't sit with you. You use it. Yeah. You know, there's an outworking of your faith. And as one preacher said, it became necessary for Paul to write to correct this. As well as to command the faithful Christians not only to break fellowship with unrepented members, but to put those members out of the church. Indeed. Indeed, right? They needed to. There's an excommunication process. Yeah, absolutely. This letter is crucial for the edification of the church today so that those who preach may preach with the conviction of enabling the church up to the foundational truth of godly behavior and faithful service. It's still prevalent today. I think it's most prevalent right now, mm-hmm. right? Social media its influencing every single generation, no matter how old you are, unfortunately. Yeah. And... Preachers and pastors need to preach the truth in the fullness of God's word. Yeah. And if need be, you kick them out. You know, there's a mm-hmm. process of discipline within the church. Yeah, right. which I think it's which which I think is super special that that we have such a dense letter that brings up some personal application, like that Paul's doing some personal correct correcting. He's addressing a specific situation that's going on within the church, and and it's helpful because although that particular situation may not always uh, um, may not always apply to our congregations, the principle behind it is still 
completely and utterly relevant, which obviously you alluded to. So as we move through the passage, uh, verses four through seven, I love how, how he he emphasizes that it's the same God. Mm -hmm. These gifts, although various gifts, are of the same God. And so in verse four, at the end of verse five, and in the middle of verse six, Mm -hmm. he says, same spirit, same Lord, and same God. So it kind of has like a a Trinitarian thing going on. There's a harmonious Trinitarian effort. Yeah. Right. Our God is a God of order. Mm -hmm. And also it, allows us to understand where, first and foremost, where the gifts came from, where the unique ministries came from, but also who gives the allowance, the purpose, and the means Mm -hmm. to provide in all these things. Right. Paul, I don't know if he he had this in mind when he wrote it this way, but the the diversity in the divine trinity uh, should reflect the diversity of the gifts within the unity right. in the body of Christ. So, the way that that the three persons of the of of the Trinity work harmoniously mm-hmm. together, they have the same plan. They they work together is the same way that we should be working according to our diversity of gifts. Right. Yeah. Right. The Son, you know, submits to the Father's will in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then and then Jesus is in is led to say like I must go so that so that the paraclete the 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 helper may come like mm-hmm. I have to go through like so it's all working beautifully together and then Paul says in verse 7 but to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit mm-hmm. for the common good this is the purpose as to why the holy spirit came is helping us in, interpret scripture love Christ not not quench um, not quench him, uh, but to serve one another. Yeah. And what's most beautiful about this section, right? It's Paul gives us the what, the how, and the why, right? There's there's a progression as to why he's providing us with where these this, these gifts came from, and how we are to use it, and why we are to use it. Mm-hmm. And, and another thing, when we talk about these gifts, right? They aren't your day to day skill set. Or yeah. abilities. It's not, you know, one you would find in both believer and unbeliever. It's never like that. It's specifically for believers only. That's a good point. I right? Like because when we find, when we look at diversities, right, it, the Greek for it is diuresis. It means distinction. Mm-hmm. There, There is a distinction and particularness to the wide range of gifts. There's a distinction there. But not only that, you know, it's not of talent, skill, or ability. Again, it's not how well you sing or how you play an instrument. Because most most modern day Christians today uh, would, or well, I would say the big Eva. Unfortunately, yeah. big evangelical world, big church, big church would mm-hmm. say that your gifts would, your spiritual gifts would be, oh, you're gifted with singing, you're gifted with. Um, yeah, I mean, right. something that is that is automatically recognizable. Yeah, it's, right? it's like presentable, right? Tal- a certain talent. Yeah, a certain talent, right? Yeah. It's not how intelligent you are, right, in a certain subject. These gifts are uniquely and distinctively for believers and used for the edification, building up of the church, and for the glory, ultimately for the glory of God. Right. Because, again, it's so easily misinterpreted. So easily misinterpreted. Because anyone could say, you're given a gift, 
use it, but you don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. If you don't know what it is, there's a problem. Yeah, you have to know what it is. Yeah, and churches have even uh, manipulated their congregations in taking a test, right? In taking like an Enneagram test yeah. or or something that a business would yeah. would give its employees, like, hey, this is I need you to fill out this survey so that we have an idea on what you're good at, mm-hmm. what type of attitude you have, what type of characteristics you have, and then we'll place you or recommend this particular ministry so that according to what the test revealed to right. us, uh, we may be led to place you in the right in the right spot. Yeah, and those business tools, they and like you said, they have infiltrated the church. And which is a problem because most of these things are purely satanic, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And they are used by Satan to dissuade believers. Yeah. So because the Holy Spirit graces us with these gifts, then any exercise of that gift should be and reflect God, mm-hmm. should should be like God and yeah. should reflect the character of God. Yeah. And so any misuse, any abuse of it uh, is actually, you're actually being ungodly. Yeah. You're, you're misusing it and abusing it. And so let's continue forward. So verse 8 through 11, we get the list of gifts. Right. And uh, I have a, a list here. So it's wisdom. Mm-hmm. And then obviously, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but from my understanding of 8 through 11, it's wisdom, it's knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discerner of spirits, tongues, and a tongues interpreter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is, that, is that a similar list that you got from, from those verses? Yeah, that is a complete list of uh, what I have. Yeah, and, and they're separated, right? And they're separated between sign gifts, speaking gifts, and serving gifts. So sign gifts... Can you say that again? So sign gifts? Sign and, signs and miracle gifts. You okay. have serving gifts and speaking gifts. Okay, speaking, serving, and signs. Yeah. Okay. So how, do we, how are we able to distinguish those? Because from the way that Paul organizes this text, one thing that he for sure emphasizes is the sameness of the Spirit. Like yeah. after each gift... He says something along the lines of, according to the same spirit. Mm -hmm. So one thing that you can't argue for as a reader of this text is that someone else provides this gift. It is black and white as can be that every single one of these gifts is not a manifestation of Satan. It's It's not demonic. It is from God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. And not only that, he distributes... He freely distributes those gifts, these gifts, as he chooses. Mm-hmm. So, if you get a gift of wisdom, then that's that's it, right? Right? Like he yeah. he chose that for you. Yeah. You can't just say like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not yeah. gonna, I'm not gonna accept that. That's that's what the Lord has provided to you. You probably have a lot of notes regarding this passage. So, <laughs> so so, what do you have? For, for 8 through 11. Yeah. You know, one of the big things we should stress first is the difference between wisdom and knowledge. Right. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. The first one he notes is words of wisdom. It's essentially the ability to understand God's word and is able to apply it into your life. Right. And then words of knowledge. Now, these gifts right here, they're revelatory gifts. 
meaning that they are to foretell something. Okay. It is to reveal something to the first century church. And in the first century, it was revelatory. And then today, it's the ability, this words of knowledge, is the ability to understand and speak God's truth with insight to the mysteries of his word through the means of scripture. It's using scripture to interpret scripture or using scripture to be able to answer a question or to convict, rebuke, right? We Mm -hmm. know that all scripture is perfect for reproof and so on and so forth. But the main difference between wisdom and knowledge, knowledge is grasping the truth. And wisdom is the application of that grasp, truth. Okay. So they work hand in hand. Yeah. It's always a hand in hand. Some people think of wisdom today as something you know, that you're able to say to someone, like a fact or something that is smart. Yeah, something right? that any, you know, any random member of the of society can regurgitate right but unfortunately it's the application of that knowledge it will always be the application of knowledge because first and foremost you have to know it in order to do it Mm -hmm. there's always a a progression right teaching will lead to right living right doctrine will lead to right worship right it will always be like that and then next you have faith and this is one of the serving gifts faith is a strong trust in God. This is so different for uh, a, salvi- a salvific term for faith. Mm-hmm. It is a str- rather than a salvific form of faith, it is a strong trust in God in difficult circumstances, meaning you're persistent in pay- prayer and you have endurance in your intercession for people. And this is, again, for the edification of the church. Remember, it's like it is always within that context. So to to say that this is a salvific faith is wrong because that's not the context that Paul is speaking of. Right. It is mainly for the service of those in the church. Right. So uh, would you say, like, to kind of give a, a practical example of, for example, the gift of faith, uh, would that be similar to someone who has experienced great loss, like significant loss? and yet still remains faithful in their faith. Like Absolutely. it still remains steadfast, still remains immovable. They have the hope of heaven, like it's literally burst, like they, they, it's coming out of their ears when you talk to them. Uh, would you consider that like as someone with the gift of faith? Absolutely. Personal experience, I was affirmed to have the gift of faith. That is one of my spiritual gifts that the Lord has given me. And the reason being is one of my elders told me that first and foremost my testimony that's mm-hmm. one of the biggest things right the service within the whole transformation process and also the sanctification process i've been dealt with so much trial in my life and even in college that they've seen that i'm firmly rooted no matter who talks to me no matter what goes on in my life i'm always firmly rooted and I will not stray away from my convictions. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Just wanted to ask that just so to bring a point of clarification right. uh, yeah. for obviously anyone who's listening. But so the question that I had regarding this passage, and there are several, I think there's two or three other lists yeah. of gifts in other portions of scripture. Uh, if I remember correctly, one of them is in Romans 14 or 15. I think it's 15. 
So we have Romans 12. Romans 12. Oh, that, that helps because 1 Corinthians yeah. 12, Romans 12. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. It's very big in Romans 12, actually. Can you, huge. would you mind reading that list? Yeah. Do you know if it's the same? Like exactly the same? Very similar. Okay. Very similar. The only thing that is not in Romans 12 is the speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues. Otherwise, they're pretty identical. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And there's also Ephesians 4, 11, the evangelist, right? That's true today. Yeah. Um, and we find that list as well in 1 Corinthians 12 in the latter half of this verse where he talks about the members of the body. Mm-hmm. Right? Are we all apostles? Are we all? And so on and so on. Would you like me to read the list that I have? No, it's okay. I just, yeah. I just, um, I asked that to kind of, I guess, shine light on the differences mm-hmm. of, of the list, like mm-hmm. the, the variations between the three, uh, the three lists. And so the question that I, that I had going through this passage, considering the topic of cessationism and continua- continuationism, which is obviously you can tell from the those two words that continuationists believe that these gifts, all of them, not just some of them, but all of them are still alive and active today, right? So so in their view, the, the, the Holy Spirit has blessed people with uh, the gift of prophecy, the gift of healing, the gift of miracles, the gift of tongues and tongue interpretation. And then the cessationists believe that certain gifts are definitely still active, uh, as you made a distinction between the sign gifts, the serving gifts, and the teaching, uh, the speaking gifts, mm-hmm. to maintain the the little right. S alliteration, <laughs> which is helpful. Um, that, And correct me if I'm wrong, that the cessationists believe that the Holy Spirit is still active and working through the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. Right. And primarily, the difference between those two is one believes that the signs and miracle gifts are still available through human agents. Okay. But... Which are miracles Miracles, healing... healing Raising of the dead. Raising of the dead, speaking in tongues, interpretation of the tongues. Okay. Right. So so my question uh, that I had, I'm not necessarily asking you, I'm just bringing it up because this is something that has been on my mind uh, studying this passage, is that if the gifts have ceased, why is then Paul correcting a first century church on how to use them? Right? That, that, that was just where my mind brought me. Uh, I, I was last year, uh, I had a student who was going to Grace mm-hmm. and um, a to- the topic of spiritual gifts and tongues came up in another class. And so she came up to me and was like, hey, um, I was basically shunned uh, for <laughs> believing that the gifts, certain gifts have ceased. Um, what's your interpretation? What's, what's, your, what's your take on it? And so, and so this is the, uh, I like to, I like to kind of walk them through the question that they ask and uh, according to, and, and I always re- like refer to scripture. And so the question that I asked, I was like, okay, so Paul gives a list of these gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. And so this is the question that I asked her. If the gifts have ceased, which is what she believed and which a lot of people ha- do believe, why is then Paul correcting them on how to use them? You don't have to answer that, but that's, I present that because that's a question that I'm still kind of working through. And, you know, 
you are more than welcome to bring clarity to that. <laughs> I think there are two questions you need to ask. First, in the historical context of this, is the canon of Scripture finished? Okay. One. Second, has apostleship ceased? Are the line of the apostles that the risen Christ has appointed, have, it, have they been gone? Are they gone? Right? Those are two, two major questions because in our modern church age, or one would call today the postmodern church age, mm-hmm. many have persuaded, many have been persuaded by heavy misinterpretations, whether it may be soteriological, Christological, pneumological, right? Regardless, there are multiple interpretations, but when interpreting scripture, and we agree with this, right? We must know and outline historical and thematical context, Mm -hmm. grammar, original word, sentence, and paragraph framing. Yeah. We call this exegesis, right? We need to properly exegete scripture. And that's what we're doing right now. We're Mm -hmm. expositing it and exegeting it so that we understand fully what the Lord has said and what clarity we're given through His Spirit. And as one author writes, exegetical theology supplies the building material for foundation and structure. Therefore, this is also my framework for understanding the ceasing of signs, wonders, and miraculous gifts, Mm -hmm. which we find here in 1 Corinthians 12. So again, the first question I asked was, has the canon of Scripture been completed? Mm-hmm. In this time, no, absolutely not. So let's start with understanding the purpose of these gifts. Okay. These gifts are used to authenticate the messenger of God and God's message. These signs and wonders and miraculous gifts are to authenticate the messenger of God and God's message. And we know this by Acts 2.22, mm-hmm. and, and I'll turn to some of these. Romans 15.18-19, through 19, 2 Corinthians 12.12, 12, Hebrews 2, 4. And so when we turn to, and I'll, and I'll pull up Acts 2, 22 here. I'll do the, I'll do 2 Corinthians 12. Okay, 12. Yeah. Um, so I have that right here. Um, so 2 Corinthians 12, 12 mm-hmm. says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So here, He's talking about the thorn in his flesh, and he is essentially defending his apostleship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's where he says in verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you, and that mm-hmm. was by signs, wonders, and miracles. So right. that's where his ministry as an apostle were authenticated, and that was through signs, wonders, and yeah. miracles. Okay. And in the same likeness, Acts 2.22 says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by what? Miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did also through him in your midst as yourselves also know. And so we find that in understanding that the miraculous and signs and gifts were for revelatory and confirmatory uses, it should be done away with because, again, the canon of Scripture, the canon of the New Testament, and the entirety of the Scripture of from God was completed. The last book to be completed was the book of Revelation around AD 95. Mm-hmm. And when John was writing about the seven churches in Revelations 2 to 3, there was no mention of signs, wonders, and miracles. And then the second question that I asked, right, was 
What was the second question I asked? Has the oh apostleship? Has the, yeah, apostleship. Right. In addition, right, you read it. Second Corinthians twelve twelve. Paul notes the mark or the signs of an apostle. The word signs there, or semion, meaning a mark distinguishing a person from others. This is what the apostle Paul writes, and you read it. Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. Likewise, the Old Testament prophets were authenticated in the same way. And so there is a, um, a consistency with the use of signs, wonders, and miraculous gifts. And that was for authentication. Authentication. In Deuteronomy 18, 21 to 22, And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Question mark. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. Mm-hmm. The prophet who has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. If then apostleship has ceased, for when to be for one to be made an apostle is to have seen the risen Christ, right, and was appointed by him, then the signs and miraculous gifts must have ceased with it. There is a progression. It was to authenticate Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles. Then if they were to be gone, the logical progression is it's done. Mm-hmm. It should be done. And I know it's it's so controversial today. Yeah. It is completely controversial today. Yeah, because the, the understanding is that that we think or cessationists think that God isn't working anymore, that he's silent. And that's not at all what we're saying. No. Because you may have a different, I don't think you have a different uh, perception of this, but we're not saying that God doesn't still heal. We're not saying that God doesn't still, God doesn't perform miracles. We are just saying, and I believe you're making the argument for the fact that those things don't happen through an agent. No, it should not happen through a person anymore. Yeah, so a person, so this is why the, the... the common question from a cessationist to a continuationist mm-hmm. is if you have the gift of healing, then why don't you go to a hospital and heal everyone there? Right. And, right. and you see this through the apostolic age too. It's waning throughout the period. Yeah. And, and if I'm not mistaken, like uh, as soon as Stephen dies mm-hmm. in Acts 7, somewhere in there, Acts 7, and then uh, Paul has his conversion in Acts 9. These uh, these signs and wonders don't happen anymore. Nope. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, there's not a single one after the stoning of Stephen that happens. And even and if even if if we think about what Paul writes in in some of his letters, right? He he tells I think it's he tells Timothy to take some wine to uh, to heal his to heal his yeah. stomach, like to yeah. to make him feel better. Mm-hmm. And then him struggling with a thorn of his in a thorn in his flesh for the for the rest of his days, yep. there there's something that changes there. There's a shift from the early apostleship at, and and further on as we go in as we read on in scripture. Mm-hmm. So there's you can't deny this how the scripture progresses. I was listening to a sermon by John MacArthur uh, earlier today, and he made the same point that you did earlier where where he he outlined Moses mm-hmm. 
Elijah yes. and, and the prophets, and then Jesus and the apostles. All three of those times in biblical history, those ministries were accompanied by miraculous signs and wonders, right? Mm-hmm. Moses and everything that he experienced, <laughs> the burning bush, 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, and everything that they experienced in the wilderness, like the water from the brook and so on and so forth. And then Elijah with, I'm not, I don't remember if it's Elijah or Elisha who has the the competition on Mar- Mount Carmel. Is that Elijah with or Elijah? With the false prophets? Yes. I believe it's Elijah. Is that Elijah? Yeah. But anyway, so yeah. those three, I guess, ages or those three times in biblical history were all accompanied, or not just three times, but three, I guess, sets of people, yeah. right? Moses and, and the Israelites and then, and then uh, Elijah and, the, and, the, and some of the prophets and then Jesus and the apostles. All of their ministries were accompanied by these miraculous signs. And, and I agree with you, and I agree with you, those were all to affirm and authenticate their message. Right. Yeah. I think it's it's good to mention too because most continuationists or let let me divide it first. There are biblically grounded continuationists, meaning that they do believe that these signs, wonders and miracles still happen today, but they firmly have a foundation within salvation. They they know what salvation is, that it is in Christ alone, by faith alone, by through grace alone, right? Mm-hmm. They they understand that. But there are charismatics. And this is where the division lies. Charismatics will say that if you are saved, then you are able to do this. This is what authenticates you as a believer. Right. Meaning you need to be speaking in tongues. You need to be laying on hands, healing people. This is the true mark of spirituality. Yeah, they think that it's the true mark of of spirituality. But the problem is when they interpret it tongues, they interpret it as a divine language. They interpret it as something angelic. They interpret it as something that they call a prayer language. As groanings too deep for words. Right. (laughs) Sometimes, yeah. (laughs) And and it's it's problematic because when you look at the word tongues here, it means a known language. Yeah. Right? It, it's, is it glossa? I don't have the... the I, think it's, I think it's glossa. Glossa. Um, yeah, so, but yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a known language. Yeah, it's a known language. You see that in Pentecost too, right? Yeah. The, all these different people from different nations come together and then all of a sudden when the Spirit falls upon them, they are fluent. They're fluent being able to speak to one another and being able to interpret one another as well right yeah. if i was speaking in in chinese in mandarin mm-hmm. and then you were to be speaking in spanish you would be speaking mandarin to me but i would be speaking spanish to you right right there's that kind of cool right right it's, <laughs> it's cool right it's really cool but why was it why did it happen mm-hmm. because the gospel was preached yeah it was an authentication of god's message because those people and because some of them were saying that they were filled with new wine Mm-hmm. Some of them were saying that, oh, they're just drunk. Yeah. That they're crazy. And I, I have this conviction where th- this is my position, right? I talked about cessationism and that these signs, miracles, and wonder gifts have ceased. But I would not break fellowship with those who are biblically grounded continuationists. Right. But I would 
break fellowship with those who are charismatics, mm-hmm. those who think that it is a divine language, those who think that it is gibberish. And I remember listening to a podcast talking about how a linguist broke down the language that they spoke, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And they said that it doesn't make sense. There's no word form. There's no word form. And in, and one linguist talked about how this is how you speak it. You take out, for example, you have a word, you take out the vowels mm-hmm. and replace those vowels with consonants and put those vowels in the end. Hmm. And that's how you speak in your prayer language or whatever. And this is how they're teaching. Interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting, but it's what satanic. Would, yeah. What would be the purpose of that? There's no purpose. It's almost like you're you're almost making I don't know, it, it almost feels like much more of a sin against yeah. the Holy Spirit to do that as opposed to just believe that you don't have that gift. And it is an outward and explicit blaspheme toward the Holy Spirit. Mm. It's not gibberish. Yeah. It's not. And and to give an example of someone who would be a continuationist but yet, like you said, grounded in scripture and a, and a proper understanding of salvation would be who believes that the gift of tongues is still there, but that gift is expressed in an actual language. So when you hear it, you, when, when someone is, is speaking it or, you know, exhibiting this, this gift, that someone who knows what they're saying recognizes the language as foreign and then communicates that to everybody. Like, right. oh, this person was speaking Italian. This person was speaking Mandarin or right. whatever it may be, or Korean or what, you know, whatever. But it should be identifiable. Yeah. And I believe that, you know, one prominent preacher is John Viper. Mm-hmm. He's a continuationist, but do I break fellowship with him? No, because he truly preaches the word of God. He doesn't say, you speak in tongues, that means you're saved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Do you have anything else to share regarding the spiritual gifts and their essence? I do want to also address, in line with speaking in tongues, many charismatics today will say that they can prophesy, that they Mm -hmm. can foretell the future, that they can say that, oh, this is what God is going to do in your life. Yeah. I've had that happen to me. Right. And there's also the, the other side, or in addition to that, saying that you can hear God audibly Mm. in your ear saying words to you i want to address that because if you truly want to hear god read the scriptures scripture is god's word that's why we call it god's word Mm -hmm. if you truly believe that it is god's word then you don't need to seek an audible voice in your ear right you don't need to seek something that is outlandish and that's what paul is addressing here something that is outlandish I've seen so many people swayed away from this misinterpretation of this heresy, Mm -hmm. ultimately, saying that they can hear God, that they can prophesy in the name of your Lord, in the name of their Lord, their God. But what did John write at the end of Revelation? Mm. He, He writes in Revelation 22, For I testify to everyone who hears for the words of the prophecy in this book. If anyone adds to these things, 
God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. It's such a grave warning Mm -hmm. to those who believe that they can prophesy, that they can say that this is what God has truly said. Yeah. It's sad. Yeah, and oftentimes it it leads whoever hears that astray. Mm -hmm. And so they go on pursuing that specific word and then neglect God's word, Mm -hmm. God's written word inspired by the Holy Spirit, which is so antithetical to to that that prophetic, you know, quote unquote prophetic word Mm -hmm. when when we have thousands of prophetic words in the scripture. remember one lady in our church this was back when my wife was pregnant like early on when we hadn't really told anybody mm-hmm. uh because you know early on you, you never know if you're gonna you, you never know if she's gonna miscarry it things like that and so my wife was really struggling like she was feeling anxious she was very she was very afraid of of what was to come right and i'm not surprised but she wasn't very fond of giving birth she wasn't fond of the idea of giving birth, which I, you know, I don't blame her. And what this lady from our church comes up to me and says, hey, I know, I know that we haven't really spoken a lot and let alone me and your wife, but I recently had a dream where all I could see was your wife's face and the phrase, do not be afraid be repeated time and time again one after the other is do not be afraid do do not be afraid do not be anxious and all i could see was your wife's face now i know what people say when someone comes up to them and says you know i had a dream that i want to share with you as soon as she shared that um i started getting teary-eyed because i knew I had had all of these conversations with my wife trying to comfort her and trying to walk her through and these things and and just what she was feeling. And so I started getting teary-eyed and all I said was like, thank you so much for sharing that with me. And it was during an agape feast. And so I went over to Carolyn right away and I was like, hey, guess what so-and-so just told me? And so we had this beautiful moment. She started, started, I think she shared, uh, she shed a couple tears because she was the one feeling all of this. And so to get that from someone in our church in that specific time was very, very encouraging to the both of us because that was one of the first times, if, if not the first time, where we had a positive experience with someone who, who approached us in that way. Yeah. Like, hey, I had a dream or, hey, I, had this prof- I have this prophetic word over you where it was a really not just a positive experience, but a very edifying experience. And so that is where, and obviously that's experience, right? Anyone can give you 
a recollection of experiences that somehow authenticate these, you know, these things or these gifts. But that kind of leads me to what Paul talks about in the rest of the passage where he mentions uh, how can you say like, oh, I, I have no need of this particular body part, right? And that's mm-hmm. where he's like, where he brings up that conversation where what you shouldn't be doing is telling someone with that particular gift that you don't need them, that we don't need that there. So as we transition into the bulk of the analogy of the body, how does what Paul says in that passage about you saying you don't need that, how does that coincide? How does that fall in line with the cessationist argument, right? Because some some people will hear this conversation and say, isn't that what you're doing? That's exactly what you're doing, right? Like you're you're essentially saying that not only is it heretical, but you don't need that part of the body, so to speak. So how do we how do we navigate through that? First question I ask is, how do you know it's from God? Okay. How do you know it's from God? Mm-hmm. Because Satan will use any devices in his hand to be able to dismay us, mm-hmm. to use us and be able to render us ineffective in the church. How do you know it's from God? Those people who are saying that they prophesy, how do you know it's from God? Mm-hmm. Again, right? Deuteronomy says, if anyone says presumptuously what has been spoken and does not come true, why why believe it? Mm-hmm. It hasn't it didn't come true. Right. Right? And even then in Daniel, or even in the prophets when they're having dreams and visions, there's an interpreter. There's an interpretation of the dream. Right, yeah. That's right. Right. And I know that I don't know if it's in I can't remember correctly if it's if it is in Deuteronomy eighteen, where if you get one prophecy wrong, you're a false prophet. Mm-hmm. So I, I really appreciated how this lady at our church kind of formed it, where mm-hmm. she was like, "Hey, I, I don't know if this applies. This is this is just what I had, right? I'm not. <laughs> I, it's kind of hard to to deny. I, I, I'm not gonna stand there and say like, oh, you didn't have it, like because that's kind of random. Like that's super random. Right. But it really encouraged my wife and I in that time. Like it was right. truly a special moment that we were able to share. But I don't go seeking those things. Yeah. Right? Like we seek to be comforted and feel secure according to the promises that God has given us Mm -hmm. in the person of his son embodied by the Holy Spirit. Like those things are what we should be seeking. Yeah. Which goes to my next question. Uh, I know that we're kind of jumping all over the place, but which goes to my next question. If the gifts have ceased... Why does Paul encourage the desiring of them at the end of the chapter? Is he referring to love, which he kind of goes into chapter 13? Or is he referring to these specific gifts? So check this out, right? Before that, he's going into a rhetorical like statement of questions. Mm-hmm. He's saying, are all teachers, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all workers of miracles, do all have gifts of te- healings, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire best gifts. Now, a more accurate translation, because in the context of this, he's addressing a falsity within doctrine. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't fit to say that to pursue these things, 
It doesn't fit because he's been talking about how all these gifts are being misused. Yeah. Right? And so, and I'm going to bring in the LSB here. In the LSB, it says, but you earnestly desire the greater gifts. That you in the LSB translation helps assess what Paul is saying within the context. And Paul was addressing the mere selfish uh, selfish desires of the Corinthians. Mm-hmm. And that's what he was addressing. Which is why he says, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Right. There's a continuation to that to that sentence. Mm-hmm. It doesn't end pursue these things. Right. He then says, I show you a more excellent way which he then speaks of it in chapter 13 and chapter 14, right? right? The love mm-hmm. chapter. But also in 14, he talks about it even more, about prophecy in tongues. Mm-hmm. And how to, yeah, how to properly use them. And, and uh, I think it's definitely necessary to say, kind of stemming from the question that I asked, the deepest problem that was going on within this church wasn't necessarily the the I'm better than you, mm-hmm. I have this gift, so I'm better than you. It was the it was the attitude of actually I don't need you. Mm-hmm. Which is why he brings up the the analogy of the body. The body. That the eyes will observe the ears and say, actually I don't need you. And you're like, wait, what? Like so this is the the issue that was going on is that they were dismissing them. They were dismissing probably several individuals in the church. Yeah. Several individuals in Corinth who were spirit indwelt believers. And so some of them had the audacity to observe them and say, Yeah, you guys, those with the teaching gifts, those with with the lesser gifts, so to speak, are useless. We don't need you. And that's serious because the church body is supposed to be a united body, which is why he brings up that, the analogy of a body that you can't say to the other member, I don't need you because it it's completely, that idea is completely antithetical to what the nature of a body. It's a, it's a united organism. Yeah. Each part works off of the other mm-hmm. for the purpose of building the body up. Yeah. And this is something that Paul emphasizes in this bigger portion of verse 12 through 26. And then he brings it, brings it to bear at, at the end in verse 26 where he says, And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So there's this deep unity that Paul is emphasizing regarding the, the essence of spiritual gifts. They're supposed to be things that are that are demonstrated for the purpose of building up and uniting the people. Mm-hmm. So all that to say the big problem was self-sufficiency. Yeah. That as the church grew and spread and within church history, just in, in the matter of a couple decades, there were Greek, Latin, Jewish, Syrian, mm-hmm. Coptic expressions of the church, yeah. each with their own language and each with their own culture and ways of worshiping. And so the strong tendency then and now was and is for each tra- tradition to become self-sufficient and say to the rest of the Christian world, we don't need you. You're, you, like you as a denomination, we actually don't need you. You and your expression 
can can go away. We have our own language. We have our own liturgy. We have our own history, our own theology, tradition, and culture. All we need is what we find within ourselves. So Paul is is hitting that time and time again throughout this chapter, this sin of division because of the diversity of the gifts, mm-hmm. when in reality it should be edifying. Mm-hmm. With with all that to say, do you have any ha- do you have any final thoughts or statements regarding this this bigger portion of the analogy of the body? When Paul talks about the body, he mentions a unity and a diversity, right? Mm-hmm. But everyone is conjoined by what? Right? He says in verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and having all been made to drink into one Spirit. And you mentioned this, right? There's a multitude of people in this body. Yeah. And this baptism that Paul is speaking of is not water baptism. And I want to address that too because some people may say, oh, this is, oh, we're baptized. So that means that we're dunked in water, now we're new. Mm-hmm. But it's rather akin to Romans 6, 3 to 4, where it talks about a spiritual baptism, a euphemism of the death and resurrection of Christ. He speaks of the union we have in Christ and the union we have due to the indwelling of the Spirit of God. And this call for unity is the body of Christ. That's why he says, we drink of one Spirit. There is a fullness because of the Holy Spirit now dwelling in us. Mm -hmm. There's no partiality. You don't need to seek experiences to formulate an increase in your spirituality. You are filled to the brim. The Spirit dwells in you. Yeah. God dwells in you. And so that in turn must have us obey and trust in what was already given. And we find that in Hebrews 10, 14, right? Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Mm. We're full, complete. Yeah. That word perfected is complete. And then he talk, Then Paul talks about people being selfish. <laughs> Mm-hmm. People being so-called self-sufficient. Unfortunately, there is no self-sufficient Christian. There is no lone Christian. There is no lone wolf in the Christian world. Right. You must seek fellowship. And that, that's why Paul goes into this rhetoric of saying, okay, if you say that you're of the body, you don't need this. Or you, you're an I, but you don't need him. You don't need her. Each and every gift has a use, no matter the status of the gift. All gifts have significance, whether it be a showy gift, the visible one speaking, or the quiet gifts. Now, you may not have the gift of preaching and teaching, but that doesn't mean your gift of helping is significant. Each gift is dependent on one another, for the church is built upon them, and he emphasizes this in verse 22 to 25. Talks about how no, no much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable on these we bestow greater honor 
and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Those non-visible parts are your organs, if we go by the same analogy. Mm -hmm. If your heart fails, what happens? (laughs) You're done. You die. You die, right? Your brain fails. You die. Your stomach fails. You probably die. You probably die, die, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yeah. And so there's significance no matter the gift you have. But there's still mutual love that needs to be stressed. Mm-hmm. Mutual love for one another. And you touched on this saying, talking in verse 26 to 27, that when one suffers, all suffer. There's functionality within the body. It's never the hand works alone. Our head is Christ. Yeah. And we're just limbs or even organs toenails even Mm -hmm. if need be a pinky toe a pinky toe because god chooses where we're assigned to yeah and what gift we're assigned to and may and it may be one two three or four no matter how many gifts you are given you still cultivate them all you still pursue the gift that you don't have if you don't have the gift of preaching preach do it more. Do it more. Practice. Right? Practice. That's the idea of practice makes perfect. But ultimately, perfection is unattainable. But mm-hmm. you still strive. Right. Yeah. As much time as I spent in this passage, I never thought about the organs. <laughs> I always thought about the outward stuff. Right? Like the, I mean, would you consider the eyes outwardly? Yeah. Yeah. So the eye only thought of like the eyes, the ears, the mouth, the hands, like the limbs. But you mentioned the unpresentable parts or even the less honorable parts that they would consider. And you mentioned the organs. I was like, yeah, you're right. Like no other limb or external, more presentable, so to speak, part of the body functions outside of the ones that are inside the body. And as you mentioned, and this is something that Paul emphasizes in his list of gifts in Ephesians 4, and Mm -hmm. and we went through this when we were going through this in our young adult study, he gives the reason in verse 12 of Ephesians 4. He says, for the equipping of the saints, Mm -hmm. for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. It is for one another. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. is the primary reason. That is the fundamental charge as to why you have a specific gift, and that is to serve. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, if you are not using that, you're actually hindering the growth of the body of Christ, Mm -hmm. which is a, a very, very grave concern. If you, The fact that you are hindering the growth of the body of Christ, Christ's body, mm-hmm. is, is something truly, truly grave. Mm-hmm. Like, you gotta, you, gotta, you gotta do something. You better do something. You gotta get off your hands. And, and this is why I love how Pastor Josh, when he gives announcements on Sunday morning, 
He says, if you are a born-again believer, you have no place in the world anymore. And he calls, you know, the Bible studies that we have in our church, family activities, because that's exactly what they are. And I love the fact that he says that we don't have a place in the world anymore because we try so often to fit back into the world, wanting to use those gifts of the Holy Spirit to succeed in the world, right? If we are a crafty, charismatic preacher, we want to gain a following. We want to, um, we want to be a voice in society. Yeah. When in reality, if that's our focus, we're actually using our gift in an improper way. And it's just, it's necessary to kind of emphasize that point because when we get in in conversations with people with opposing views, we kind of miss that. Mm-hmm. And as Paul says at the end of the, at the end of, in, in verse 26, is necessary for us to meditate on and chew on and, and mull over where he says, if, and if one member suffers, then all the members suffer with it. Right? It doesn't it may not lead to death mm-hmm. as a heart not <laughs> yeah. functioning anymore, but it does cause a a hindrance of growth, which in reality, if we think about the growth in the church, that would be a type of death. Right? It's it's we should be taking it as seriously as as leading to someone to their grave. Because if people aren't growing like muscles they're getting smaller. Mm-hmm. If they're not used, they're being neglected and ultimately they're not going to be uh, useful anymore. So to withhold the use of your particular gift is actually, you are actually contributing to someone else's downfall, which is quite, if I'm, if I'm being honest, it's, it's quite humbling and it, I am, I personally am in, I, I hang in the balance between running myself into the ground with studying and preparing for, for messages and sermons and things like that and neglecting it. But I'm, I'm at a beautiful point in my life where, where I love it. Mm-hmm. I enjoy it. Uh, God is leading me through attaining the wisdom on how to, how to serve my family and be there for my family and also... Uh, going away for a little bit and studying and really taking the time to to intentionally sit down quietly and study in preparation. So as we close out this episode, do you have any any final thoughts, any closing thoughts? I know that what you just said was amazing. So if you want to repeat it, that's great. But if you have any any encouragements, any exhortations for anyone who's listening who has kind of uh, taken a couple steps back from serving the church or has completely avoided it altogether and even just the conversation of spiritual gifts uh, what words of wisdom do you have for those who are in any of those places if you are afraid to use your gifts if you are timid to apply that of which you were given. Know that there is grace, and, and there's a reason why you're given a gift. And maybe you don't know that gift. Serve. That's how you'll know. You'll be affirmed by those over you. Yeah. Your elders, your pastors, your teachers. Th- those people will affirm you of those gifts. 
and even as small as maybe helping out with distributing chairs, setting up tables, helping out a believer in need within the church, or even just talking to them, praying with them. Those are very, maybe small things, but actually very great things. That's why Paul talks about how you give, they give, he gives greater honor to those gifts, to the lesser ones, to the non-visible gifts. There is no gift that is significant. There is no service that is insignificant. Your priority is not yourself. The priority is to serve God and to serve others. If you want to be a friend to another, think about what Christ did for you. He died. When he brought his disciples into the Last Supper, he said, a great friend is the one who will die for you, to sacrifice for you. And that's what love is. It's sacrificial. It's never me, 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 me. There's no transaction that you should find. You should find it as, I want to be able to serve because I want to be able to serve the Lord, to serve others, not for my gain, not for anyone. Rather, it is to serve for the building of the church because I love the Lord. Mm. If you love the Lord, if you truly love God, and as incomprehensible as that term is, one thing is it's sacrificial. You give. You never take. For those who are on the fence of knowing who Christ is, of those who do not know the Lord, know that the call is repent and have faith. Repent and have faith in Christ. There's nothing in the world that can save you. Rather, it is only through Christ and by grace alone and by faith alone and all for the glory of God alone that is able to save you. It is through his death and resurrection. It, it put a stamp on it. And sin is done away with. You turn away from your old life and be transformed and obey your Lord and accept Christ as master of your life. And as believers as well, we know this. And we need to remind ourselves every single day of the gospel that we so heavily preach to others. But we need to heavily preach it to ourselves. And, and I myself need to preach it to myself so much more so that I must humble myself and seek holiness, pursue holiness. If we serve a holy God, we also must be holy. And these are, these gifts, they are all insignificant if you don't love again. Mm. And that's why Paul gets into love in chapter 13 and even 14. And from then on, we need to understand that our God is sovereign. We serve a sovereign God who is in control of everything in our life. And may that pierce our hearts. And may we not only seek theology as head knowledge, but apply it into our life and obey the master we serve. Amen, bro. That was beautiful. I appreciate you taking the time and effort 
to study for this because it was a hefty one. And I really appreciate you putting in the study time and the hours on feeling and being prepared for, for this conversation. And although I say that um, you don't have to be an expert for anyone listening and refusing to enter into a conversation regarding the spiritual gifts, you don't have to be an expert. If you are a believer in Christ, you are welcomed into this conversation, which is why I, I, I saw after explaining this uh, chap, not only chapter, but this letter. Because so many things as, as young believers, as mature believers, we avoid things because we're not churchy enough. We're not familiar with the language and, and the different words that, that more mature be believers use. But this is why I, I chose this letter to go through so that you have an adequate understanding of what the church is supposed to be, but also to delight in, in who Jesus is so that you may operate within the body in the way that you were intended to, joyfully, joyfully. And so thank you again, Renz, for joining me. Uh, I appreciate you, man. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you want to know more about the podcast, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter, which is now X. If you listen on Spotify, make sure you follow, click the bell icon to get notifications of new episodes. And if you truly enjoy this content and want to go the extra mile to support us, become a subscriber for only $4.99 a month and you will get exclusive access to subscriber-only episodes. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, it would be awesome if you could rate and review the show if you haven't already. Thank you all for listening. I'm your host, Chris Ramirez. And this is Renz Ignacio. Grace and peace, family.